Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She's like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Amen. Father God, we look to your word and... Uh, pray that uh, you would uh, enable us to worship you as we see what your word has to say for our lives. I pray that you would enable me to uh, faithfully preach it, us to faithfully hear it, and to glorify you by doing it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I rarely preach on Hallmark uh, holidays, but I changed my mind midweek and decided that uh, I do need to teach more about this. Sometimes we can take for granted uh, things that ought not to be. Uh, there are a couple of things that motivated me to change my mind, and one was uh, a, a friend that I would never have guessed being influenced by the people that he's been uh, hanging around but uh, wavering on the whole thing of women being pastors and elders and, you know, the distinctions between the, the sexes. And I realized, man, you just cannot assume these things. They need to be taught just like we can't uh, assume, well, my wife knows that I love her. No, we need to tell our wives that we love them. Uh, just as we can't uh, assume that uh, uh, they know that they're appreciated, we can't, I, I don't think, assume that everyone understands uh, the, the, the principles of uh, godly uh, womanhood. And you young boys, you need to listen up to this too. This is not just a sermon for girls, because if you look at verse 1, it says, The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. And everything he's going to say in the rest of this chapter are things that his mother taught him and uh, wanted him to understand that uh, why would a young boy be taught about the uh, godly virtues of um, this, uh, this lady? Uh, well, it's because he didn't want her, him marrying the wrong woman. 
In fact, he warns uh, him about that in verses 2 through 3. What, my son, and what, son of my womb, and what, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. Uh, he, he, the, the mother is saying, look, I want you to understand the way women work. I want you to understand the, the way men work, their roles, their responsibilities. And that when you grow up, I want you to understand exactly what a godly woman should be like. It's very important for us as fathers to teach our children. Very important for us as uh, fathers to know how to relate to the wives. So this is really a sermon for all of us. And... Um, uh, it is, when you read through it, quite a, a culture shock clash that we get with 20th century America. If you're anything like Kathy and I, you've probably heard many negative comments about motherhood, and not just in terms of the number of children. We've actually got what I consider to be a small family, but uh, I've had uh, numerous times when people have, in fact, I had one lady rebuke me for having so many children. Um, and uh, as she worded it, keeping my wife uh, barefoot and pregnant. Uh, and you've heard those things, but you've also, I think, heard Christians being tempted to apologize for things that they have embraced, things that they believe are godly and are biblical. Uh, you know, where a husband will say, well, no, my, my wife doesn't work, or my wife uh, uh, just uh, stays at home. Just. <laughs> or where wives sometimes apologize in this way. Uh, I want this to be an encouraging sermon for the wives, an eye-opening uh, sermon for, uh, for all of us. There was a, a lady in a, a, a university back east whose husband um, had to have different conferences and things, and she had to mix with some of the people that were there, but she was just so sick and tired of the patronizing looks that women would give when she would tell them that she was, uh, uh, had full-time work at home, and, um, you know, they would kind of, yeah, okay, right. And so she finally decided, next time we have one of these things, first person that asks me, this is what I'm going to say to them. I'm socializing two homo sapiens and the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the teleologically prescribed utopia inherent in the eschaton. And then ask, and what do you do? <laughs> and so they're, well, I'm a lawyer, a doctor. Um, wouldn't sound quite so overpowering, but it ought not. This is the greatest profession. This is the greatest role that a person, that a woman could take on is motherhood. And I am not going to cover even remotely all of the things that this uh, chapter could talk about. I'm going to pull out a few encouraging things here. But just as an example, I could devote an entire sermon to how the woman in, in this chapter uh, contributes enormously to free market economics. Uh, it really is a, a, a marvelous topic, and it's something I ran across when I was doing research on our sermons on, uh, on economics. Uh, numerous, you, you'd think, okay, you know, feminism is uh, wanting women to get into the free market, and they're supporting the free market for all people. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, a lot of people um, uh, uh, have uh, recognized down through the years that actually uh, they have been promoters uh, of, of um, socialism and, and have actually been eroding the free enterprise system 
For example, there have been thousands of regulations that women have asked for to enable women to more freely enter into the workplace. Just one small example would be for the government to sponsor government uh, daycare centers for the children. And all of these, I think, are a step toward socialism. And all the way back to the Civil War, or the war between the states, depending on where you're from, um, all the way back there, feminists in their writings have publicly declared that the only way feminism can triumph is if there is centralization of government and total socialism that takes over a society. And there's numerous quotes that you can, uh, that you can look at. Uh, they are not interested in the kind of financial gain that verse 11 talks about, the division of labor, the kind of profits verse 16 talks about. Uh, Mary Pride says, those turn-of-the-century feminist ladies were logical thinkers. They saw clearly that role obliteration would not be possible while families could operate independently of the economy. In other words, they saw that role obliteration is only possible under socialism, and the stay-at-home wife is the single greatest deterrent to socialism. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> the stay-at-home wife, single greatest deterrent to socialism. I think she's actually right on that. But she goes on, says, the private houses, private kitchens, private children, all must go. And uh, there have been numerous uh, uh, feminists who have said the same thing. Dolores Hayden, modern-day feminist, said, any socialist feminist society of the future will find socializing domestic work at the heart of its concerns. In other words, that the raising of children would be up to the state, not to the parents. And so we could uh, take an entire sermon just going through some of the different uh, passages, some of the different uh, verses in this chapter, showing not only division of labor and efficient allocation of scarce resources, but how she is essential to the man's specialization and many other, uh, many other subjects. And so I think she was right. The stay-at-home wife is the single greatest deterrent to socialism. Now, I'm probably not going to preach a sermon on that, but if I did, one of the things that I would point out is that not all stay-at-home uh, wives are that way. There are some who compete with the family business, uh, just as much as feminists do, but that would be a subject for another time. What I want to do is uh, just give some principles uh, this morning and pull them from various portions of this chapter that I think would be really encouraging. First principle, well, actually it's my third point. First one was they teach, verse 1, okay? They're involved in, in uh, uh, free market economics, but the first principle uh, beyond that is understanding that a woman's sense of self-worth and the sense of worth that we impute to women should not come primarily from what they do, but primarily from who they are and what their role is under God. Now, the passage does say a lot about a woman's uh, profession, as it were, and what she does, but take a look at verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife for her worth is far above rubies. There really is nothing that could be a substitute for the virtuous woman of this chapter here. There have been some who have said, well, God could be a substitute for a husband or a substitute for a wife. Uh, God declares himself to be a father to the fatherless, and that is true. God can sustain people when they go through the difficulties of losing husband, wife, uh, losing parents. But it's not entirely accurate to say that it would be a full substitute because God himself said in Genesis 1, after he had repeatedly said, it is good, it is good, it is good in creating things, immediately after he created Adam, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. 
I will create a helper suitable for him. And so there was a, a recognition on, on God's part that it was not uh, simply uh, loneliness or companionship that the woman was filling because God could have been a substitute in some ways for that. But God imputes great worth to a woman as a woman the moment he creates Eve. For the first time, he says, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. The moment he created her, he said, it was now very good. What he had before said was not good. And Adam certainly felt that way, because prior to her being created, there was not anything in all of creation that could satisfy him. She was worth more than all the rubies that were in the Garden of Eden more than all of the other creatures that have been brought before him. Why? Because after he had seen it all, there was still this void that God himself had placed within his chest to make him recognize Adam and Eve as a pair were the most complete. He still had that need. And so he didn't need someone who could do everything he could do. He needed division of labor. He didn't need somebody who could think just the way he was thinking. He needed another perspective. He did not need another he-man protector. He needed a nurturer. And her worth, and her worth is God's declaration, it was very good. Her worth was declared before she had done anything. Before she had done anything. It was because of who she was and the role that she had embraced. And I think it's very important to grasp that point because one of the dangers when we read books on Proverbs 31 is that sometimes these books portray the idea that the sense of worthiness comes from all of the activities that the woman is involved in. And that can be a real trap that we can fall into, and it can be very discouraging. In fact, for, you know, some of us people, I was not brought up uh, being trained in all of the skills, you know, for manhood. I've had to pick up as I go along, and the same is true for some women. It can be very discouraging and overwhelming to look at all of the things that she does. Actually, I think it's probably true that she's a composite woman, you know, representing many different uh, women in one, in, in, um, in, in one place. But uh, I think it could be a trap to get our sense of worth from all that we do. Uh, during times of tiredness and sickness, and even when we're a new Christian struggling to become the godly woman that God calls us to be, we can, we ju we can just get overwhelmed and feel like we're not... Uh, worth uh, anything. In fact, I think this is the very error of feminism. Feminists have declared over and over that the worth of the woman is declared that in, in, in being able to do the things that men do. They, their, their sense of worth comes from their activities rather than from who they are. And so being, this is, this is an important lesson, being is more important than doing. Who you are in Christ is more important than what you are doing for Christ because Christ doesn't really need all of your labors, does he? In a moment of time, he could do anything that he wanted. All he could have to do is speak and it would be done. So why does he allow us to do all of the work that we go through? The reason he allows us to do it is so that we can be more and more conformed to his image, so that we can grow in fellowship with him, so that we can be being more important uh, than uh, than the doing of these things. And verse 10 uh, says, Who can find a virtuous wife for her worth? Her worth as a person. For her worth is far above rubies. He doesn't say her productivity can be measured in the rubles she brings in. 
Uh, he values the rubles. He values the productivity, the economics that he talks about here. But I think the first point we've got to get down is even if you're an invalid, there is a worth that you have. Even if you are not able to do all of the things that this woman does, you've not yet grown to that place, you still have worth in God's sight. Now, his mother, in verse 1, had warned him about the kinds of things he should avoid as a king, the kinds of things that he should look for. And he says, first and foremost, son, I want you to be looking for a woman who embraces her femininity, who embraces and delights in the fact that God has made her a woman, a woman who can take pride in her calling, a woman who embraces uh, the, the, uh, the, the right and the privilege to bear children, to manage the household, to educate, and to do so many other things that we're not even going to look at today. We live in a day and age when many times women feel demeaned when they are being treated like women, when they are being honored and respected as women. They don't want the distinction of the sexes. In fact, sometime you might want to do a study on your own. Just read through the book of Proverbs and write down everything that it says in contrast between the woman, the, the woman who is the fool, the foolish woman, woman of folly, and the woman of wisdom. And I think you will see almost everything that the feminists stand for is represented in the woman of folly. Um, it, it really is an amazing thing. She abandons her femininity. She rebels against her husband, is boisterous and loud, tears down her household rather than teaching her household. She does not have a quiet demeanor. I mean, to me, it's a description of the worst facets, at least, of feminism. Elizabeth Elliot said, there is a fundamental and to me quite puzzling omission in most feminist discussion, the failure to talk at all about femininity. In other words, the failure to talk about what is unique about women. I mean, here's what they're devoting their entire life to is defending women. They don't even talk about that which is unique to the woman. She says, we are not required somehow to overcome our sexuality. We affirm it. We rejoice in it. We seek to be faithful to it as we seek to use it as a, go a gift of God. Unfaithfulness to one's sex is unfaithfulness to everybody. The husband who is not faithful to his masculinity defrauds his wife, and the reverse is equally true. We are called to be women, not men. I have accepted God's idea of me, and my whole life is an offering back to Him of all that I am and all that He wants me to be. And if you have lost your sense of self-worth because of uh, the, the things that are going on in our culture. And actually, not just self-worth and motherhood, it's wifehood, because the wifehood comes before the motherhood, right? He said she w uh, that he saw everything he had made and it was very good. I mean, there was a completeness there even before the children were brought on. But if you've lost your sense of self-worth, it may be because you have not fully embraced God's measure of womanhood. And when God fails to see the complement the complement of an Adam and an Eve, I think he says it is not good. And I think we feel frustrated in that dimension as well. True worth comes when you embrace your calling. Now, the next principle is that true strength comes as a woman embraces her subordinate rule. Now, many times people will quote from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that the woman is the weaker vessel. And she is weaker in areas where she is seeking to compete with the man. But this passage talks about the woman being strong in areas where men are weak. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul makes it very clear that there is a dependence that the man has upon the woman, the woman upon the man. He says, she is not independent of the man, and the man is not independent of the woman. 
And so we see here in Proverbs 31, verse 11, the heart of her husband safely trusts her. So he will have no lack of gain. There is a dependence, a trust that he needs to have in her because he can't do everything. And there's things that she can do that he is not going to be able to effectively do. He needs her, according to this passage, socially and sexually and financially. He needs her encouragement, her wisdom, her managerial skills. And there's many different ways in which the husband needs and is dependent upon the wife. But I do want you to notice, first of all, that when the woman embraces her role as the weaker vessel, that ironically, it's at that point that the God enables her to have the greatest strength. And this passage talks a lot about the strength of the woman. If you look at verse 17, it says she girds herself with strength. Okay, it's like clothing. It's all around her. Her whole being reverberates strength. It's not weakness. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. If you look down at verse 25, it says, Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. But I think that the word virtuous, actually, in verse 10, brings that out rather well in the Hebrew. Uh, I'm not sure virtuous is the, a great translation. The margin has valor, and that's uh, a lot better. But the Hebrew term is chayil. And it's a word that always refers to might or strength or power. Uh, in fact, sometimes it is translated as force or an army, battle, uh, band of soldiers, valiant and uh, strong. So which is it? Is she weak or is she strong? Well, uh, she is weak in, in the areas where she would compete with a man. And that can be very problematic and frustrating. But Paul says, you know, when I am weak, then I am I strong. He is saying it's in the, in the very recognition of the areas that we are weak, that when we claim God's grace to work through us, we can be strong. Even in the weakness, we can be strong. And so I believe this passage is indicating that when a woman fully embraces her calling as a woman, she is endowed by God with tremendous strength and influence. Do you want to impact this world for Christ? Women, uh, you can do it best not by usurping the role of the man. Uh, that's where your influence, I think, is going to be weakest. It's not by being revolutionary. Uh, scripture indicates you'll have far more lasting influence. You'll have far more power in society if you will embrace your role of submission and you will work through the means that God has set up for you. Uh, there are a lot of times people are, uh, women are so active and so involved in social uh, type of genders that they neglect uh, their families. In fact, we knew we were, we were friends with a, a lady who bemoaned that uh, later in California. But uh, if you can devote yourself to your family, your family itself will have a profound impact upon culture, much more profound than the things that you could do by competing in the man's workplace. You're creating a culture. Mary Pride says, I have often felt a sense of unreality reading about the degenerate world outside my home. Inside these four walls, there is no such thing as pornography, drug abuse, bad language, punk rock, abortion, euthanasia, unwanted children, juvenile delinquency, sexually transmitted disease, murder, rape, embezzling, and so on. If you went down the list of federal bureaucracies, you would find that not one does any business with my family. 
I say this not to boast, but to encourage you to do the same. Inside my home, we are building a Christian culture. My home is a Christian nation. We have Christian rulers, mommy and daddy, Christian laws and Christian enforcement. We have Christian media, Christian books, magazines, and videos. We have Christian art on the walls, not biblical scenes, but paintings with a Christian spirit. We have Christian entertainment, Christian conversation, Christian standards of dress, Christian relationship, Christian business practices, and Christian medicine. If someone snatched away the outside world and plunked us down in the middle of a new Christian earth, the little children might not even notice the difference. We might or might not be able to change the composition of the Supreme Court, but we sure can change the world starting at ground zero right now. And what she is saying is, as we as parents begin to take hold of the task of not worrying whether the neighbor is going to do it, but beginning to train our children what it means to have a biblical perspective on, on law and medicine, on the arts and other things like that, that it will make a difference. We are creating a culture and our labors will not be for nothing. So have a long-term change, perspective, vision for change by outnumbering the Egyptians and by training your children in godliness. Now, another issue I think that a lot of moms don't get enough credit for is that the skills that they have to develop. In fact, uh, some, some of the moms that uh, uh, we have had were never taught those skills. They've had to pick them up on their own and uh, develop them. I got a kick out of uh, reading what uh, was on the list of an early 17th century American's uh, picture of an ideal woman, and right up there top on the list was able to cook and make beer. <laughs> I don't know if he got his wish list or not, but that was right up there on the top. Uh, but it really was remarkable the number of skills that Hebrew women had to learn. There was just an enormous number of skills. And if you want your daughters to be marriageable daughters, I hope that there is a training, an inculcating into them of the most skills that you're able to transfer to them. And if you haven't, you can start right away. Um, the Hebrew woman here, um, they're not all listed, but implied in this chapter is that this woman has been trained in cooking. Now, my sisters um, had a little bit of ability to cook, but trained in, in, in cooking, sewing, uh, there was almost no training in sewing for my, my sisters. In fact, I don't th we grew up in a boarding school, <clears throat> and we got almost no training. Um, to me, I think it's really neat when we can pool our resources, because I feel in some ways that I uh, have uh, cheated my children. So I've been trying over the past numbers of years to learn as many skills as I can. And what we've done, for example, is I've had... Um, John Haynes, come over to our house. I don't know much about construction, but I'm a pretty good learner. And so I have him come over, and it would be much easier, much quicker, to just have somebody else do it for us. But I want to do it. I want our kids to do it. And so he tells us what to do. Then we do it, and he tells us what we did wrong. <laughs> and he's basically training us, you know. So there is a, a pooling of resources, even though we did not have them. But anyway... Uh, this, this lady implied here is that she was trained in finances. And really, that's a marvelous topic of its own. Many times people think, oh, that's something a man should learn. No, the women should learn finances. They should know how to run a business. They should know how to, how to uh, deal with in, even the areas of charity. What is proper charity? What is not proper charity? Managerial skills, food preservation, so many other things. 
You know, one of the things I am grateful for on Y2K is on that scare there was that even though none of it panned out, it woke people up to a realization that, yeah, you know, there are skills that we probably ought to have because there could be at any time the need to have those skills. Um, and so I, I'm very thankful that the Nilsons passed on to Kathy sewing and gardening and canning and many other skills. Uh, those could come in very handy. How many parents teach their children about sex in marriage? And I'm not talking about the basics. Um, I'm talking about training them on, you know, before they're married, training them on things that, you know, we pastors have to counsel them on years after it. Please do me a favor and train your, train your daughters, you know, on, 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 on sexuality. I think it's an important topic. God wrote an entire book on the subject, and it's the Song of Solomon, and I think there are many parents who are too Victorian to take that book seriously. But Hebrew women were trained. They were trained, and Hebrew men were trained how to be sensitive and understand the dynamics that uh, drove the other partner. I think that's in part uh, why Titus says that the older women need to train the younger women how to love their husbands. I think at least that is involved in there because you can't just assume that they will automatically understand the principles that are in there. Um, my whole point is that being a virtuous woman doesn't happen by accident. Uh, my dad grew up on the farm. He was an extremely talented man on the mission field. But I grew up in the boarding school, and I never learned any of his talents of plumbing, of carpentry, mechanics. Uh, I mean, he could do just about everything. I never picked up any of that. And so I'm grateful for the, the, the coaching that has uh, been going on. But you mothers should not be embarrassed to pull aside uh, a more mature person who's maybe had experience and say, look, um, Titus 3 says, this is something older women should teach the younger women how to do. Could you show me the ropes of how to love my husband, love my children, how to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, and some of the other things uh, like that? In fact, you know, even in the area of, the, of modesty and discreetness and chasteness, uh, I don't think we can assume that people automatically know what that means. You know, for years, I struggled with the concept of what does it mean to be modest, both for men and for women. I knew the scripture commanded it. I knew it commanded us to, to cover ourselves. I didn't want to be legalistic going beyond the scripture, and I just wondered, you know, well, does culture define it? How in the world do we know? Well, yesterday, I got a book from Vision Forum uh, called The Undressing of America by Jeff Pollard, and he gives biblical information. Now that he's set the framework, I've been able to think of a whole bunch more scriptures that he didn't put in the book. Marvelous book, by the way. I encourage you to get it. The Undressing of America. We're having every one of our kids read it, and we're going to have some dress code changes. But uh, wonderful book. Uh, it's an encouraging book. I was, I was excited when I saw it. I said, oh, yes, I, I knew. I just sensed that there had to be a standard, you know. And the scriptures... I think do clearly lay those out. But just as it takes a man years to learn to be a lawyer, a doctor, a carpenter, it took years of daily training for young girls to learn the skills of being a godly woman. Now, you might feel overwhelmed. You look at all the things that are in there and say, you know, I can't do it. Well, they couldn't do it overnight either. You know, they grew up with it. Their parents were teaching them, and so it came naturally to them. They taught their children. But for those who have never been trained like me and like some other 
uh, people, it's something you, you just learn as much as you're able to, and hopefully your children will go a step beyond where you have been able to be at. So don't make it a discouragement, but do teach them where you're at. I mean, shoot, we, a lot of people spend, you know, 25000 dollars to $25,000 a year on a college education, which many times doesn't end up being what they're going to be working at anyway, and they spend far less thought on how to train the children in the home skills that they need. And so I, I really think we need to uh, think about that. Okay, point six. When we teach our children craftsmanship, let's make sure that it's quality craftsmanship. Verse 18. She perceives that her merchandise is good. Okay, God values it when we do the extra little touches that take something from passable to good. Okay? Uh, whether it's in our cooking, you know, or whether it's in something else. Here, it's uh, recognizing good fabric from not-so-good fabric. I mean, that's a skill in itself that needs to be taught. And then doing something with that fabric. Uh, you know, I, I think that the ministry that Joanne Cullen is doing and training some of the ladies and their children and sewing, that's a marvelous ministry because these are things that in years gone by people would have just taken for granted that everybody was trained in this. You can't take anything for granted nowadays. So thank you very much, Joanne, for that. But Ecclesiastes says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There needs to be quality in the things that we are doing. Um, Analyze your wifely and your motherly duties from A to Z, from sexual relations to cooking, and ask yourself, are you attempting at quality? Many times, I think, uh, people will give far more quality to the boss that they are working for part-time than they do for their family, and they need to ask themselves why. The family is the most important thing that you could be working for. Why is there less quality there than elsewhere? Now, we're not going to have time to go... Uh, much further here, but let me end by looking at two sides of the second half of verse 30. Second half of verse 30, it says, But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. A woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So the first admonition is to the woman that she needs to learn to fear God more than man. She needs to learn to uh, long for the approval of God rather than for the approval of man. Uh, husbands will let you down. Many times we're, we're not uh, considerate, we're empty-headed, we don't realize, you know, what, that uh, we have uh, uh, failed to affirm and nurture as we ought, and we have a responsibility to do so. But if you are doing it first and foremost for God, and you're saying whether He acknowledges it or not, whether my children recognize it or not, I want to do the best job that I can as a wife, as a mother, and Lord, I'm delighting. I have the joy of the Holy Spirit in the things that I am doing. Then uh, you can appreciate all the more any praise that may come from uh, the inconsistencies of uh, us menfolk. But the second half of the coin is she should be praised. She must be praised. Verse 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed. You kids, you need to continually let your mothers know what a blessing your mother is to you. And don't allow your focus to be so much on the negative things that you disagree with 
we're all going to have negative things, right? We're all going to have failures. Don't let your focus be so much on the negative things that you see there that you fail to see all of the ways in which your mom is a blessing to you. Uh, she needs your praise uh, for what she has done right. She deserves your praise. You know, to keep on keeping on, we need to feel that we are appreciated. And I've been letting mothers know that God appreciates them. You children need to let them know that as well. Now, one of the complaints that counselors frequently hear is that husbands don't express their appreciation as much as they should. Uh, sometimes we're thoughtless, as I've mentioned. And uh, yet this verse says, her husband also, and he praises her. We need to praise our wives in front of the kids. We need to praise our wives in front of the business associates. We need to, we need to praise them and make other people, let other people know we have put our wives on a pedestal, as it were, and we consider her profession to be far more important to us than all of the rubles that she could bring in in some other job. We may have her bringing in rubles, but that we respect her. And if we don't, uh, we don't uh, appreciate her, it may be that uh, it's because we have not fully allowed her to bloom. You know, the word for nourish in, uh, in, in Ephesians chapter uh, 5, that the husbands are commanded to nourish their wives, is a, is a, um, a term that is used of plants. And if your wife is drooping, you know, and not looking praiseworthy, <laughs> and not really... Uh, uh, been able to do much, it may be because you haven't been watering, you've not been nourishing your wife, you haven't been pouring in the water, you've not been putting in the fertilizer. We as husbands have a responsibility, first of all, to so nourish our wives that they come to the place where they're blooming and they're praiseworthy, but we have the responsibility to praise them as well. Third area is social. In verses 13, 16, 18, and 24, uh, her labor spoke for itself. You know, when the businessman down the street came to see her, her, her product, he liked the quality of her product, and he liked the price of her product better than the corporation down the road, and he was willing to buy it. He saw that there was a quality there. Now, unfortunately, I think a lot of times what has happened is that we have so many bureaucratic regulations that have made cottage industries difficult that it's hard for... Um, uh, people to compete, to have family businesses like it's talking about here. You have to go through a lot of rigmarole. And so, you know, obviously there's areas of government that we need to, uh, that, you know, probably should be addressed. But many times businesses are part of the culprit problem as well. Um, the, the businesses actually ask the government to rule out cottage industry. Uh, the, the, the businesses sometimes will work a mother so long and so many hard hours that she feels trapped and there's no way out. And so the more influence that we can exert on, on business to accommodate motherhood, the better off we'll be. Now I'm just going to end with one more. This woman's husband was working in a government position, and that's what it means by sitting in the gates, and that may be why in verse 31 it shows the government to be non-interventionist. You know, he's influenced the government to just back off and let mothers do what they do best. I like the title of the book by Walter Williams. Um, yeah, what is the title? I really like it a lot, don't I? Um, yeah, it, it's, it, you'll have to read it for yourself sometime. Um, had to do with liberty, 
and gov more liberty means less government. That's the book. It's a, it's a great little book of essays. But anyway, the point is that we do want to bless you women and, uh, and ask your forgiveness for the times that we have failed as men to nourish you and to bless you and to build you up as we ought. We want to pray that your roles in your families will be joyful roles, roles filled with meaning, that your roles in the family will be blessed, that God would prosper the work of your hands. And so I just say, God's blessing rests upon the mothers and the wives of this, this congregation. Amen.